Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 28th of September 2020. Let's start with happy birthday Josh, 30-year-old son. Oh my goodness, does that make me old? Yes, it does. If you remember a few weeks ago, we had a podcast and we mentioned Project Do. Well, Project Do is coming very close and uh, in next week's podcast, we're going to be talking about that. And during the week of when this has come out, you're going to find out a lot more about it. So very exciting times from doing grain. Moving on to the market for this week. Well, it's been it's been an exciting stroke, interesting week. You know, it's been some frustrating moments, I will add, but um, probably the biggest bad moment is the, the announcement by Roquet, who are a French starch company who use a quarter of a million tonnes of UK wheat in their Corby plant, have announced they're going to close. Now, you know, this is a Monty Python sketch opportunity where they, you silly English, we will leave. I mean, basically, um, that's bad news because a quarter of a million tonnes of usage means that there is more wheat, less usage, and consequently it damages price somewhere along the line. So that in the background, I think they close in December this year, means the second half of the year they won't be using any grain, but more importantly, ongoing from there in future years, that will be an outlet that's disappeared. That's not good. Um, but the excitement dominantly been in wheat trading. First things first, there's been some absolutely, well, very, very high ex-farm feed wheat prices paid on, which relating to what you can actually make into the consumer doesn't make any sense. Now, either somebody knows something that we don't, or they are going for market share. But without any doubt, it has blown us out of the water on two or three occasions. And, uh, you know, you get patted on the head and called old and out of touch. But sometimes, I've seen this in the past on on several occasions, you can't consistently pay two to three pounds over the market and make a profit. So somewhere down the line, something's going to change. And maybe maybe it'll work. Maybe the the, uh, market share was worth it. But, uh, you know, on the basis of history, I would say that's a dodgy piece of ground to be playing on. But no, the real excitement for me on the November futures, we, we've been talking about that quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. We're quite involved with that. We announced two weeks ago we weren't going to be doing any tendering, and that still is the case. Um, I believe there is someone who is short of futures who is struggling to be able to tender, and we're really interested to see where that tonnage comes from. Um, we've got ourselves lined up with several other people, I think, um, waiting to find out where this grain comes from. If, if someone is short and they can't tender it, the pressure is beginning to mount on them. They've got to do something uh, in the next month show their hand. Uh, Next week, I believe the ICE Futures Exchange will be publishing the future store list so we'll see who's actually registered stores and if there's a sudden new exciting store on there that might answer the question but I have my doubts so we'll be looking at the usual culprits of which we aren't normally quite prominent um, and we've stated our position so uh, well as I say it's to me interesting. It is currently trading at £182 a tonne, as I record this, which is a contract high. 
the physical market is still trading at levels that relate to this, so it, it actually still stacks up that uh, if the consumer still has to pay a premium over the futures price that equates to the haulage, then there is no point whatsoever in tendering it. We might as well keep selling the stuff to the consumer. So I think that at the moment, until the futures price, or unless the futures price gets completely out of sync with the physical market, I still think the position on tendering is not going to change. So that is, as I said last week, is for anoraks only, and uh, yeah, I've bravely got my anorak on at all times, and I wear it for this and for train spotting. Anyway, AHDB have this week come out with their final year figures for supply and demand for 2019-20, uh, with a great big caveat in saying if you took the DEFRA figures, there would be an 800,000 tonne kind of extra surplus of wheat that was carried from one year to the next. If you take the BPS figures then the surplus is only an extra 200,000 tonnes. Now, OK, that is kind of covers everybody's backsides a bit too much for my liking. In the end, you have to make a guess and genuinely put a position out there. It just highlights that AHDB's information is too limited. Uh, I mean, we there's a lot of debate about what AHDB does. I've got some seriously good mates in that business, but in my view, they are looking very seriously at how much money they're spending. And I can see... In cereals, £11 million going into a section that has, forgive me for this, but too many employees, too many nice young people who, you know, in the end, it would be money better spent, in my view, in getting accurate export and import figures on a weekly basis by paying someone money for that. Yeah, getting accurate planting figures somehow or another, you know, getting actual, up-to-date, realistic, in-time planting acreage figures from, I guess, from the ministry or from the, whoever the, the, the acreage, the BPS thing, get that actually nailed and get those export and import figures nailed on a weekly basis. I think um, there is some serious questions. When you've got figures you're supplying, which is 600,000 tonnes apart, that isn't a lot of help to anybody. It's kind of like, we don't know, so we'll put these out there and we'll say that one was right at the end. So it's Life ain't like that, everybody. you just got to stick your neck on the line and go, this is what we think it is. And and then if you're wrong at some point down the line, defend your position and say, we haven't got enough information that's accurate. If you haven't got that information that's accurate, what's the point of being there? And that's, that's the problem, OK? Back to the actual supply and demand, in my opinion, for this year. If there's a much smaller carry-in, which we will say there's perhaps less than people have been anticipating, imports are still more expensive to physically ship across here, unload find some storage you've got to move it too quickly and then cart it off to wherever you're carting it off to there's no carry in the market so there's no point in having sales further down the line for the stuff coming in so imports at this point are still more expensive than buying grain or buying london wheat futures even so with that in mind i think there is still some more upside to this market um, until we get to the point where we're confident there is more supply than demand and at which point as i've said before the bubble will burst Let's move on to new crops. I'm getting a bit boring about that. Uh, 21 crop. Market has gone up on the back of the old crop. We've obviously seen a lot of grain drilled into very dry conditions in, in Norfolk. We finally had some rain. And boy, oh boy, is it raining like crazy this morning. It's going to carry on all day, all the way through the night and through till mid-morning tomorrow. Up to 8am this morning, one of our farmers said he'd had 40 mil. So it, it's a proper, proper rain. Um, and so we've got a few issues over here. And there'll be a few people panicking about that and, and re remembering last year and wishing they'd planted it and all of those things. And I'll remind everyone, it's still September and the market probably will give us an opportunity to plant it again in a month's time and we'll be fine about it. But uh, it is certainly focusing a few people's minds this morning with the water everywhere. And our man Ian Webster's house has actually got so much water 
uh, outside that it's coming in his front door, so he's, he's mopping up water as we speak. So it must be a lot of water. Oil seed rate prices, market's gone down £8 a tonne. I think last week we said 350 was a target, so what a target is for taking. Uh, all right, we'll get instant gratification. Uh, it's all about timing. It was a good time to sell it last week. 342 is still a good price. We actually think the market remains underlyingly firm, so it's not going to fall out of bed, uh, and it probably will go up again at a later date. But uh, So oil seed rapes had a bad week, but uh, underlyingly, plenty of buyers still out there. Barley prices for 2020 crop, they've come up a lot. There's been a big export um, deal done, we understand, to North Africa. So there's, I think, into Tilbury, there's been some bigger prices paid. Ex-farm feed barley prices in Norfolk, which is a fair old trip to go down to Tilbury, have been um, helped up on the back of it. So 132x is a, is a spot value, possibly a bit more than that. Very healthy looking market, downside very limited as we've said before. That's a great increase in price from where we were at harvest time. A full 12, 13, 14 pounds a tonne from its worst moment, which is, you know, in literally a month and a, well, six weeks. And that undermines or underwrites, sorry, the, the malting barley price. You no longer can get next to nothing for malting barley, albeit the malting barley market is kind of consolidating. There is a, there is a number of tonnes, as we mentioned before, of Scottish barley coming down south for a change, and that's at a relatively cheap level. So there is markets for your malting barley. Most people have traded it, but let's see the samples. And my call for samples last week fell on pretty well deaf ears, so um, either there isn't any out there or nobody's listening who, who has barley left for sale. And I don't think there is much left for sale, I will add. So what have we covered? We've covered malting barley, we've covered feed barley. Uh, new crop feed barley is not as much of a discount as this year. Where this year's trading about £43 discount to feed wheat because of the artificially high feed wheat price due to the fact we're an importing nation. Next year we won't be an importing nation, so the discount is down to about 15 or 16 quid. So um, feed barley or barley looks a little bit healthier in the context of wheat. In saying that, £16 more for feed wheat still means it's best to grow feed wheat next autumn, so we still expect to see a very, very big wheat crop next year. What other big news have we got? I think the most exciting thing for us is is our Project Do. Other than that, I think you can enjoy the second half of Teddy Morph and my uh, conversation where Teddy gets into stories of beer and, more importantly, we start tasting some of his beer. So have a great marketing week and I hope you all love our Project Do. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Some things are so good. Some things are so worth waiting for. Next week on Dewing Grain Podcast. Bigger than Bill Gates' Microsoft. Bigger than Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. Bigger than Steve Jobs' iPad. Even bigger than Safitra's crazy ex-farm feed wheat prices. Get ready for Project Dew. Project Dew. Coming to you. And now it's time for farm chat. So, Teddy, as a tenant, you know, if you, if, well, you aren't just farming, how do you see the next, you know, five years? We've got Brexit, we've got subsidy changing. Where do you sit with it? Well, I feel, I'm not just saying this because I'm on a podcast, but I feel that being on the Holcombe estate, if I'm going to be a tenant, which I am, is an advantage Mm -hmm. because both Lord Leicester 
and all the people around him in those top positions are very Paul Hoverson, James Beamish. They're all cutting-edge guys who are trying to get the most from nature and the land and make sure that it's not compromised on the environment. We have Jake Fines, mm. who's now an environmental director at Holcomb, yep. and I've done a scheme with him at Brantill where we've put a fifth of the farm into grasses, mixed grasses mm -hmm. for birds and bees and insects. And I think this is going to be the way forward. And it's trying to farm efficiently as, as well as doing these two things together. And that's the, it's a balance. And I know that Holcomb eventually would like to get into a more organic situation. I see the road that won't be a compromise where we use less chemicals but we use ones that are minimum negative effect on the environment. Yep. But we don't go backwards and are not too Luddite and slide back necessarily to just organic and end up with a product that perhaps isn't as good a quality because it's got its mildew or whatever disease is mm. going at the time. And we've got to be realistic. We've got to feed the planet. It's no good us having wonderfully high-class organic food from the UK and no one being able to afford to buy it except the chosen few. Well, you'll be able to, depending on what the government does, you'll be able to buy some nice, fresh Amazon rainforest land that supplies soya, won't you? So chicken and product that's just <laughs> cheap as chips, so who cares? Well, it, it, what, is, what is worrying is there is a sort of cycle here with this island in that we keep... It's happened for 300 years, so I don't know why it would stop now, where governments eventually repeal corn laws. I'm going back in time <laughs> yeah, yeah, now yeah. a bit. But, and when, when this happens and you let cheap imports come in, it's all hunky-dory because it lets the consumer get food cheaper and it balances the country's books. And heaven knows how to balance this country's books at the moment is going to prove the Chancellor a slight headache. And it's very tempting. But we also know on the other side of the fence that if you ruin your domestic agriculture, it is at your peril. And if there's so many things, you've said the rainforest being ripped up because, you know, they're trying to supply us and other people who've gone down this route. And you don't have any food security of your own. And although I don't envisage submarines sinking all our grain ships tomorrow, with the pandemic that you never know what is round the corner. And I think to have your own food supply is very sensible, even if it's not 100%, but to have quite a lot of food in your own food bank of your island, particularly when you're on an island, does seem to make sense. Well, this is strategic long-term planning. We, we quite often come back to that because I kind of feed people into it. But I would say that the strategy upon long-term food supply, if we rely upon South American imports, for example great 10 years on the trot 20 years there'll be a year where china has a phenomenally difficult harvest where the whole of their corn area is droughted out and gone to hell and they will get the checkbook out and they can afford a lot more money than we can and we will go okay we'll buy our normal amount of soya please oh no we've sold it all to the chinese or oh another country let's just pick on them but to the point being strategically the government has got to think about the year that you can't get supply from somewhere else because they're not going to supply it it won't be there Exactly that. But unfortunately, governments are usually short term. How can we get out of this muddle? A bit of like Laurel and Hardy, another fine mess you've got us into. <laughs> and, and they're looking for just the short term. But I think with 
the planet how it is. You, you know, there's a lot of things going on that are all changing. We must, I think, personally accept global warming in some shape or form. Absolutely. And I know that we are breaking more weather records. I've just spoken to my son yesterday who said they've had no sun for three days now. It's been night for three days and three nights because there are so many fires now in that part of California. He said you don't know whether it's two in the morning or two in the afternoon. So golden, now, golden boys picked the wrong place to live then. Golden boy. Well, there's certainly a golden hue to the sky at the moment, yes. So he may be in the wrong place, but I'm glad Trump is taking it seriously and not just blaming it on the foresters not clearing up the forest properly. Oh, dear. well, you know, that there, there is someone who will eventually shortly disappear. But um, so long as you have a... It's not just Trump, is it? It's the whole... The consumerism in the States is nearly twice as bad as we are, and we, as a UK, are four times worse than an average Indian. So our consumerist world in this country is is just as much to blame. Plastic, plastic, and fossil fuels. But I think this is where... Josh's generation, if we may bring him in, are much more, quite understandably, because they see the year stretching ahead of them of the plastic tide, <laughs> whereas we may be thinking, well, it's not my problem, you know, anymore. But Josh, what do you feel about the whole, you know, not just plastics, but the whole pollution issue? Well, it's obviously pretty drastic. I mean, you're pretty lucky because actually, obviously, I surf as much as I can and the sea's pretty clear, but there's the amount of rubbish that gets washed up on the beach and the amount of stuff that you see. There was a dead seal I found on the beach yesterday which had a ring pull from beer around his head. And I thought that was, you know, pretty grim. But it's getting worse. The biggest generation, I think, actually is probably some 30 next week, yeah. pretty much. And I think is actually, is strangely, 10 years below me and younger because they're really getting it on the news. And people are really watching it a lot more than I am. I, obviously, I'm concerned. And I try and be as sustainable and as careful as possible, yeah. but you can't always do that. But younger generation are really, really way more concerned than, than most people are, I think. Yeah, interesting. It's, you know, so this is a wave to use your sort of coming back to surfing, uh, a wave that isn't going to go away. It should be on uh, radio, Teddy. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's true that we must take this more seriously. Did you watch David Attenborough? On I watched the beginning and I am oh. get, we've recorded it and obviously oh. I will watch it. Well, Required viewing. I, I had to be in oh. a buoyant mood to, to watch yeah, it. It's incredibly, he tries to be upbeat about it in the end. It's, it is what it, it's very clearly we're past the point. I can't see an answer to it until the human race is dying in the street. I don't think the human race is geared to react quick enough. So you think we're dinosaurs? I think we're, yeah, I do, yeah. I think yeah. I, I, I'm really fatalistic about it. I, you know, you can do, what can you do? Turn the lights off, not use so much water. But what difference can, can Teddy Morph Andrew doing make? You've made a difference with malting barley in Norfolk, but what can you do for the planet? Well, what I've done for the planet is put 200 acres of land into which is going to help the birds and bees. So you're not going to corner me on that one. No, no. Uh, And we are hoping that it is going to help the planet. But I think if you get the younger generation on it, and it's amazing what the human race, I'm not blind optimism. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it's amazing the ingenuity of mankind how we have got out of scrapes in the past. So the only thing, obviously, that is is worrying is that it will bring tensions to the surface. Mm. And obviously what you want to avoid at all costs is war. So, And I think we've got to get on board more with it. But I do think as a farmer, I do feel responsible more and more. But we've had 
I mean, just as an example of crazy behaviour, which you'd only probably get, I saying in Norfolk, you might get it somewhere else. You know, when we were watching at home and not being able to do anything at all, two things happened. One, I went to open my greenhouse and I saw a brown tidal wave coming up the garden towards me. And I thought, well, I only had two malt coats last night. What the crew beers? What's happening? And it was a whole family of stoats coming up the path together with mother stoat and about seven or eight younger stoats behind. Mother stoat saw me and went into the hedge and she'd obviously said to the young ones, if you see a human, you hide. And all would have been well, except they all chose to go into the small same gap in the hedge together. So there was general mayhem with stoats (laughs) falling on their backs. And then the next thing, and this is what I think is so wonderful about the countryside and makes me even more determined to make sure we come through the other side, We had a big hair on the lawn, nothing unusual about that. And then I thought, he's behaving slightly oddly. It wasn't even March. And then a hare jumped out of the barley over the garden wall and ran at him. And this hare, the game was obviously pretend that you don't know you're being run at by another hare. Because hares have rather large ears. I don't know if you've noticed that. (laughs) And they can hear quite well. So the answer is this hare came charging at this one who was stationary, pretending to look at rather boring grass. And he jumped literally about four feet up into the air, sat down beside him. And five more did the same thing, where they all pretend to eat grass. And this is a boring evening. Oh, God, there's Farmer Morph looking out of the window. It can't get much more boring than this. And then it's enter stage left, hair at 90. (laughs) And I just thought, well, someone's having some fun in the pandemic. Right, Teddy, should we sample one of your beers? Are you allowed to have a sample? Yes, yeah. I've just poured a bottle-conditioned ale from the Beeston Brewery called Sterling. And the reason I've chosen Sterling is this is history in a bottle. And I'll try and make this story as short as possible. Sterling's were one of the bombers that were stationed up here on the aerodrome on the farm because Brantill Hill some of North Creek Aerodrome, which is where Sterling's and later Halifax's were stationed. In fact, you have a store there. You may, well, not, I, you I, may have forgotten. We, no, no, we, we, we keep wheat in, the, in one of the Sterling sheds and we keep malting barley in the other one. Exactly. So right there was an RAF station. And there were Sterling's there from about 1943-44, I think, was when it was finally finished. And one day there was RAF historian in the pub at Creek. This was about 15 years ago. And he heard a farm worker saying, oh, we've nearly finished harvest. And we filled up the store where the bomber mural is at the back of it, at the rear of it. And he thought, what did I hear? So he went up to this tractor driver guy and said, did I hear right? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we always store the barley in there. You know, yeah, there's a big old bomber, a drawing, painting mural on the wall. And he said, can I see it? He said, not likely. There's 70 tonnes of barley in front of it now. (laughs) So he said, well, when you empty it, will you let me know? And he did. And they went. And it was the biggest mural in the RAF history ever. And in really good condition, painted on brick. And what was equally amazing is the guy who'd painted it was still alive. And so the RAF historian rang and said he'd like to come and see this guy who'd painted this bomber. And he said, yes, come and see me. So they drove, I believe he lived in Lincolnshire at that point. Mm -hmm. So they drove up to Lincolnshire and he obviously had a photograph of this to show the guy. And the man said, yes, I remember that. But his wife said, 
When after the war finished, you showed me all your murals and you never showed me that one. And that one is five times bigger than all the rest. <laughs> and he said, yeah. Three days after I'd painted it, she never came back. I never wanted to see the bloody thing again. So after that, it was taken down brick by brick and is now at the RAF Hendon Museum. That is fantastic. So I'm really pleased that we got some history there. So we've got quite a lot of history, actually, with that aerodrome. Just before we get into the beer, I'll tell you two more little things. My father was in the Home Guard here as a designated farmer occupied. If you likened him to one of, one of Dad's army, which one would well, you Well, when you hear this, you'll see not likened, but uh, absolutely identical. And there was a knock on that door behind you where you're sitting now in November one night. And there was a guy in a parachute pouring rain. And my father said, oh, you poor guy, come in. And he said, non-speckensy. So my father got the 12 pour and said, you stay outside in the rain. <laughs> anyway, my mother said, you can't, even if he's German, you can't leave this guy in the rain. So the compromise was he came into the house, but with his parachute still attached. So he couldn't run anywhere. <laughs> my father kept him on the end of a 12 pour while my mother phoned the aerodrome here and said come and get one we bagged we a jerry <laughs> anyway uh my father felt that this was probably the you know the hardest moment of the war his proudest moment they came down and all would have been well except this guy was polish he'd been flying a wellington <laughs> and the reception committee when he bailed out with engines failing was a Norfolk farmer and the end of a 12-4. But, uh, you know, they were allies, and I'm sure at some point he... <laughs> and the other occasion makes me think about it all was there was a landing light in the garden here. And my mother, in her wisdom, painted this house, had this house painted white right. in 1939. And it's on a hill and then was floodlit. Now, if you can imagine England blacked out in the war and you've got a white farmhouse that every now and again they flood like <laughs> my parents had a certain anxiousness at night <laughs> you know some people get frightened very easily okay and uh, so finally my father was persuaded to go up and see the squadron leader and he went up to the north creek up where your hangars are and said i've got a problem i live in a white farmhouse and the squadron leader said i know exactly where you live <laughs> he said yeah that's what i'm worried about he said i need you to take that bulb out of the end landing light and the squadron leader said my boys come in off the north sea on three engines with their rudder shot away tires all perished and miserable from shrapnel and that house is a beacon for them is that what we're talking about denying them Oh, wow. The light remained. Yeah, no, so that's, <laughs> that's kind of like a really good counter story to arresting the, the, the ally, isn't it? Yeah. So I did try, Ying you know, my dear departed father, I have balanced it out. No, yeah. brilliant. So, Josh, could you pour some, some of this beer? This is sterling, and this is a darker ale, and this is bottle-conditioned, which means that it's got a little sediment in the bottom because it's still conditioning with a little yeast still in it. And if you want to read what it says on the bottle, actually, that would be brilliant. Oh, well, I shall, I shall read it. It serves at 11 to 13 degrees, and it contains malt, barley, and wheat gluten. Is this brewed at yours, anyway? Yeah, read the other bit. And on the other side, Beeston Brewery. And there is a bit about the sterling. 
Yeah, absolutely amazing war memorial was painted on the, the end wall of an Air Force building by a Sterling Aircrew member during World War II while stationed at RAF North Creek. Some of our molten valleys grown alongside the former runways at Brand Hill Farm, making a unique link between this fine real ale and this Sterling bomber. That's fantastic. You must be really proud. So I'm, I'm pleased. And, you know, these guys were, you know, much younger than you, Josh. These were sort of 19-year-olds who were going off on, on these. I think it's a really nice... Uh, it's, he, a, it's a winter ale, isn't it? So it's a it's slightly it. heavier ale. It's probably good as there's a northeasterly blowing round us now. <laughs> you say winter. I think we might have slipped into that this yes, afternoon. Yes, it's turned from, <laughs> from warm to cold. Yeah, it? warm to cold. But uh, And uh, Beeston Brewery, he was one of the original brewers that we had in the shop and he's very professional ex-lotus engineer so does everything absolutely correctly and his uh, claim to fame was the beer worth the wait which won the norwich beer festival and are you going to ask me why it's called worth the wait yeah go on i was hoping you would it was because his brewery took so long to set up that (laughs) everyone kept saying when are you ever going to make any beer mate It'll be worth the wait. Yeah, no, fair play. Okay. If you won the Norwich Beer Festival, which yeah, is a was. pretty hefty yeah. crown, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, when we get back to having a beer festival, one assumes you'll be attempting to win the same thing. Uh, we, we, we may well, but luckily we've um, got different lines in that Bruin and Max are the brewery. I'm yesterday's man now. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be talking to Bruin ready for the, the following week's podcast, so... Uh, when we named Bruin Bruin, B-R-U-I-N, we had no idea he'd be brewing. And, of course, it causes huge confusion because they say, what's your name? He said, I'm brewing. And they say, yes, we know you're brewing. <laughs> he, we, we, yeah, I, I'll definitely ask so I suspect he might have heard that before. I think so. It's like one of our brewers is called Why Not? And if you ask him, why are you called Why Not? Of course, you get the reply, why not? And that's like a Monty Python sketch. You could go on. Yeah, in, of, who's why not? One of the breweries is called Why Not Brewery. Is it? Yeah, in Norwich. <laughs> yeah, know that. yeah, yeah. So there we go. But it, this are all brewed with Maris Otter, yeah. uh, which is, as we know, this classic winter barley variety. And it does seem to be very forgiving in the brew house, which is one of the reasons people like it. So if your temperature is a little low or a little high off the optimum in the mash tun, you'll still come through. Whereas a lot of the newer beers, malt that they brew with, a bit like thoroughbred horses, they'll sort of go really well on the day, but they're more fickle. Mm. And Marisota also has that rather nice, nutty, biscuity malt overtones which you can get in a lot of the beers so in fact we have sold malt to california from this farm and one of the brewers who's used it in san francisco has said he gets his heirloom marisota malt from the high coastal plains of eastern england about that. and i just say to the customers in the shop if they're feeling dizzy it's just the altitude <laughs> And we're very proud of our 200 feet, so don't get sniffy no, with no, me. You, 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 you won't be underwater in 20 years. No, time. no, I'm building a marina at the bottom of the garden. <laughs> well, the sad, sad truth is, if uh, if uh, David Attenborough's uh, predictions are true, there's 60 centimetres of water heading our way within uh, 30 years. So, Yeah. I think it'll just be a shorter journey to go sailing. But no, there will be. Obviously, there will be some disadvantages. <laughs> <laughs> well, do, do you know what? You know, Teddy. Well, let's, let's just, just re- reviewing yeah. your beer. It's a to me. This is a this is a winter. Sit in front of the fire. You know, eat a steak and kidney pie sort of beer. Exactly that. I've got one more. If you wanted to try, 
today. This one is Wagtail, mm-hmm. Ale Next to the Sea. And that goes very well with fish and chips. Now, I've surprised you there. And that's a classic bitter. And the because it's quite bitter... Old Buckingham they come from. Yep. And bitter is good with things, with fried food, because the bitterness cuts the fattiness down. So you don't want, the last thing you want is a sweet ale with fish and chips. And the interesting thing about bitters is that women, en masse, usually taste bitter much more effectively than men. And obviously there's a blur in the lines occasionally, but nearly always women will pick up bitter much more. And that's why often when you give a girl a glass of bitter to try in a pub, she'll shake her head and say, oh, it's far too bitter for me. Because they actually get the bitter much better, much harder. They get the hit, more sensitive. Josh will do the yeah. pour straight from you, the... you finish that one. Uh, you, if you open that and then... And you've got to pour, pour that very carefully, Josh... The, the, this one, and leaving that much in the bottom, because that's bottle condition. So if you dunk the whole bottle in the jug, you'll have a murky mixture. Some yeah. And can we right. just have the spot lamp high beam on that? That's yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, this it's is... It's probably better to leave more than less under this. Okay, that's fine. That's he's, he's, yeah, learnt, he's learnt from the master. Yeah, there you go. And that is going to be a very different taste to what you've had, because the one you've had... Although it's quite a strong, dark, robust ale, it's very smooth. And this one should be bitter. Yeah, actually, that's much more my sort of beer. I like that. And that's a bitter, bitter. Mm. The only thing I'd say is when I drink a bitter, I like food with it. You know, it's it's asking for a ploughman's or fish and chips yeah. or, you know, I feel a bitter on its own is a naked beer, really. It needs food. You know, this must be a bit of a, you know, all those years ago, there you stood in front of all those Norwood farmers, stuck your neck out and you said, Come on, we've got to do this. And there was a bit of ribbing and a bit of ridicule and a bit of like, you know, you, you kind of proved the point. Maritotta became a heritage variety that actually got a premium that made it worthwhile growing. And not only that, your passion for beer and why they were growing it, you, you've managed to get this product grown on your farm. I, I And I am very, very pleased that we, we have. And I, you know, it is great that we've made joined up the circle, if you like. Mm. But you used the word ridicule. And I, it, that's so the right word. And I can give you an example of that. When James Keith and I went to the Houses of Parliament, went to Westminster and our MP uh, Norman Lamb, who's sadly you know retired now, but he he really did he fight. Was he was a good, whatever good your political allegiance, yeah, he yeah. was a he you know he fought for his MP. constituency, mm. and he set us up with a meeting at Westminster with some of the biggest molsters and brewers in the land, and one of the brewers there, I'm not going to mention him by name now, but we all had to stand up in turn and give that awful self introduction. Um, I'm Teddy Morph, and we're going to open a real ale shop on the farm. And he then stood up and said, well, I'm, you know, this brewery down in Kent. There's a hint for you. And I cannot understand why you think Joe Public would ever want to be interested in where the barley came from. I think you're on an absolute wild goose chase there. And I sat down crumpled. And then I opened my Farmers Weekly four months later to see that that particular brewery was going to have designated growers. Now, if I told you that one of their beers was called Spitfire, Mm -hmm. I wanted a beer here to be called (laughs) ME109. Anyway, we won't go any further, but it just showed how we were looked at at that point with 
great ridicule that there was no point in doing it and joining up the circle, which you just said. And actually, thank goodness, people are more and more interested where the ingredients come from. We have the, the closed circle on the Adams contract with Holcomb, don't we, Holcomb yeah. State? And it's splattered across the sterling, you know, shed. Hanger. It, there it says, it, the irony being it's actually a wheat store, but it says Adnams, the home of our barley, which is a closed loop, and it is very specifically the place where it comes from. And what is good is that people have said to me, are you sad about Adnams having the sign in that you feel it's a big Suffolk brewer on your doorstep? No, because it, it's like a wine area. It's like a it's champagne region. It's recognising, what, It's it? recognising that this area is the spot. If you want yeah. the best malt in the world, hey, you've got to come to North Norfolk for it, but not in summer two thousand and. 20. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think on, on, that, on that note, Teddy, I think we'll say thank you so much for your time and all of your free beer. And I'm so glad we finally got you on the podcast and we, we've been able to touch some of these stories. Well, it's really, really good that I feel that you've been able to, to do this in this, not for my sake, but I think it's good that we should take pride in what we're doing. And I'm actually really pleased that we have an independent grain merchant on my doorstep, and I will certainly drink to that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewandgrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewandgrain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by eastcoastproduction.co.uk.